Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as physical creatures living in a physical world, and we admit we have difficulty seeing spiritual things. We want to see the world as you see it. We want to interact in the world as your son did perfectly during his earthly ministry. And we want to be sons and daughters of yours that live in accordance with your teachings that the lost in our mission field might know you, repent, believe, and be saved too. I ask, Father, that you would be gracious with us this morning and that by your Spirit you would help us see the truth of this passage and the magnitude and importance of having a Christian or biblical worldview. We want to think rightly, Father, so that we serve rightly. I pray, Father, that you would give us a great love for the lost, that we would desire for them to truly know Christ, and that you would mobilize this church and all true churches in this area to bring the true cure, the only real cure, the gospel of grace, to all those who have yet to know your Son. We're so thankful that you've called us out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that you brought us to this place this morning and that we might hear from your word. I ask that you would be glorified during our time together in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. <clears throat> Acts chapter 28, if you don't have your Bible, open there. Uh, only 10 verses this morning. Um, trying to break up the last chapter of Acts 28 is a little difficult, um, but, I, but there's a theme here that I really want us to see um, how we think your worldview. The worldview is the term we use today. It used to be philosophy, which is a more accurate term. The very foundation are axioms or principles that you use to think and work out every day of your life. Everybody has a philosophy. Everyone has a worldview. And in our philosophies and in our worldviews, some of our truths are aligned with truth and others are not. And so my hope today is to show you from this passage not only the importance of having a biblical worldview, but what will come from that, how your life will be lived either in accordance with it or contrary to it. So the title of the sermon is A Biblical Worldview. If you were going to become a doctor or a nurse in an emergency room, one of the first things you would learn is something called triage. And triage is assigning degrees of urgency to wounds or illness in order to decide the best order of operation, the best order of treatment. So if you, for example, were in a car accident and you were taken to Good Sam's emergency room and your emergency room doctor decided to attend to a small flesh wound on your forehead and neglected to look for internal bleeding, well, that would not be good. You might actually bleed out and die because your doctor was not performing good triage. Their approach, good doctors and good nurses in good emergency rooms, is based upon their worldview. They believe it's better to save the patient, find what's most important first, than to deal with a smaller wound. As we join the Apostle Paul and Luke and the other 274 castaways on the island of Malta this morning, it is my hope to show you from the passage the importance of thinking biblically, of having a Christian worldview as you pursue Christ in this life, specifically when it comes to spiritual matters. I would argue that we are spiritually dull people, especially in the context of Western civilization. So seeing spiritual matters and then the impact that ought to have on us in sharing the gospel with the lost in our mission field. So I want to pick up where we left off God fulfilling his promise last week, if you remember, 276 souls safely delivered out of the sea, off the ship, and onto the shores of Malta. And as we join them, I want to encourage us by the power of the Holy Spirit to do two things. One, to think biblically, and number two, to heal biblically. Whether you know it or not, you need to know good triage too, even though you're not a doctor or a nurse in an emergency room. So I want to encourage us to think biblically and to heal biblically. The theme of the sermon would be this, you need a biblical worldview if you really want to help others. If you really want to help people in your life, if you want to be a servant and help those in your life, you have to have a right biblical worldview. Are you ready? Point number one, thinking biblically. Look at verse one. Luke is writing, Luke says, after we were brought safely through, that's out of the ship, off the, out of the water, onto the shore, we then learned 
that the island was called Malta. Now, Malta is still there. It's a small island 50 miles off the southern coast of Sicily. It's about 124 total square feet, so a relatively small island. Today, though, it houses a population of over 500,000 people. So small island, lots of people. <clears throat> it is a strategic location in the Mediterranean and has been for centuries, and that's why for centuries it has usually been occupied by foreign powers. Um, in the day of uh, Paul, Rome ruled and exercised Malta through Sicilian authorities. And one of the first observations we get from Luke about the, the people of Malta, the Maltese, is they were very hospitable. Look at verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Unusual kindness indeed. 276 men showing up on their shores. These are men without money, without food, without clothes. They have nothing. They jumped overboard and now they're on the beach. And for 200, 276 men for three months, the Maltese cared for them. They brought them in. They fed them. They were ultra hospitable. One of the first things they do for these castaways is they, they try to get them warm. Remember, we're talking about October, November, so even in the Mediterranean, it was cold. And these are, these are uh, soaking wet sailors on the beach, probably suffering from mild to moderate hypothermia. And so what do they do? They, they make a fire, we're told, probably multiple fires because there's lots of people. One fire would not be sufficient. And, but then in verse 3, we're told, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, notice Paul cold himself. What is he doing? He's serving. He's out gathering sticks and making that fire warmer for all those who are with him. As Paul takes his pile of sticks and puts them on the fire, latter part of verse 3, a viper, a poisonous snake, came out because of the heat and fastened on to his hand. Well, that's a nice way of saying that the warmth of the fire revived this cold-blooded creature, and that cold-blooded creature now warmed up by the fire took its fangs and, and stuck them into Paul's hand and excreted all the venom that it could. Um, the Maltese response is fantastic, and I'm sure when you heard Kirk reading it, you thought, "How what an interesting response. Look at verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Hmm, interesting conclusion. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And so from personal experience, the Maltese know it's a bad thing to be bitten by this particular type of snake, that Paul's in big trouble. His life is in trouble. But what I find most fascinating in this encounter is their moral conclusion as a result of the snake bite. Notice they don't attribute the snake biting Paul to chance or to bad luck or to some natural cause because he got warm, he was cold, now he could bite. They immediately conclude that some divine judgment is at play, and Paul is the one being judged. And they say he must be a murderer. That's their conclusion. A fugitive from the gods who may have escaped the judgment at sea, but now that he's on land, justice will find him. <clears throat> and what I find fascinating, my beloved, that even though their conclusion was wrong, <laughs> claiming that Paul was a murderer, they amazingly have an accurate worldview on three things I want to show you. From this simple passage, they reveal, one, an understanding of the sanctity of life. Number two, an understanding of eternal justice. And number three, the power of God to save. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? First, we see in their statement an implicit affirmation of the sanctity of life. What did they conclude? They conclude Paul must be a murderer. He must be a murderer because he's being judged here by this snake. And as a murderer, he what? He deserved to forfeit his life. Look at the latter part of verse 4 again. Justice, now in the, uh, in the ESV, the J is actually capitalized. It's not capitalized in the Greek, but it's capitalized here because justice is now personified as something that's happening independent of Paul. Luke writes, justice has not allowed him to live. This is the conclusion of the Maltese people. Now I would argue the first century Maltese natives had a much more accurate understanding of the sanctity of life than many, many modern Americans. Those of us supposedly civilized with educations don't get what the Maltese got. 65% of Americans today approve of physician-assisted suicide. 61% of Americans, this is from a Gallup poll just done three months ago, June. 61% of Americans approve of abortion in all or most cases. And nearly one half 
of all Americans are against the death penalty for even the most heinous of crimes. The Maltese, on the other hand, they had yet to suppress the law of God that was written upon their heart. They had yet to embrace pseudoscience or naturalistic philosophy to do away with this understanding that human life is, in fact, sacred. They still believed the law of God that had been revealed to them as human beings, that from conception to natural death, human beings are sacred to be guarded and treated as such. And so they concluded Paul's life is justly being taken because he had unjustly taken someone else's life. That's their conclusion. So when you find yourself engaged, my beloved, and I pray you do, in a 21st century dialogue about abortion, or physician-assisted suicide, or the death penalty, or you live in an area, maybe like San Francisco, where the prosecutors have gone easy on crime, and, you, and, and very dangerous criminals are let out for time and good behavior, I want you to know that the law of God, history, and the conscience of those to whom you are speaking is on your side. We know better. God's given us that law. He's placed it upon us as human beings. Know that when you argue for the sanctity of life, that you are arguing an eternal truth, regardless of how dark the culture becomes or how fiercely those you are speaking to disagree. The same law written upon the heart of the Maltese is written on their hearts, so press their conscience. They know better. We all know better. Human life is sacred. Amen? The Maltese, though, my my beloved, not only understood the sanctity of life, they had an accurate understanding of divine justice. This is amazing. Look at the latter part of verse 4 again. They say, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, shipwrecks then, if you you were in a shipwreck, that was believed to be uh, a, a means of God punishing those upon that ship. And if you survived a shipwreck, That meant that God was showing you favor. And in this particular case, we know that to be literally true because God what? He promised to the Apostle Paul to save all 276 souls on board. So to escape death at sea, only to be bitten by a poisonous snake on the land, they conclude, well, that's divine judgment. You may have gotten away from the gods of the sea, but you didn't get away from the god of the land or the god of the snakes because, Paul, now you're going to die. Again, their conclusion that Paul was being punished as a murderer was wrong, but their understanding of divine justice is extraordinary. They understood in some pagan way that justice, listen with all your might, that justice and eternal justice cannot be escaped. That if you commit a crime, big or small, the consequences for that crime have to be paid for in full. There are no shortcuts, no escape routes. Justice, that is making things right, must be served. That's the universe that God created. That's the world that we live in. It wasn't a matter of if they understood, but when. For those of you old enough, if you remember the the O.J. Simpson trial, when he got off and much of the world said, oh my goodness, a murderer went free. A murderer is now no longer going to be punished. The Christian knows what? Well, that's not true. He may not have been punished for murder here in this time, but he would be by God if not in Christ. And so it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So if in your thinking, my beloved, listen very closely, if you've committed a sin that you think you've gotten away with because you've said in your heart, you know what, I didn't die in the midst of that sin. I was out at sea and God did not kill me. Be very, very careful. They believed that justice will catch up with you sooner or later, so saith the word of God. Now as Christians, we believe that God is perfectly just, that he is the perfectly good and just God, and that every sin, big or small, we believe to be a crime against him first, a crime deserving of his just punishment. And that means every sin, big or small, has to be paid for in full. Justice has to be served. There is no escape from that either. So if you've sinned and and you think, well, you know what? God's going to be okay with me sinning. Again, don't be fooled. The Maltese were not. We ought not be. God's justice will find you. If you escape at sea, he'll find you on the land. If you escape in this life, he'll find you in the next if you're not in Christ. In fact, the Maltese were right. The latter part of verse 4 again, look with me. They say justice, meaning God's divine justice. If exercised against you and not against a savior or substitute, will not allow you to live. 
There's no way of living if God exercises his justice against you. So our Maltese friends, our first century Maltese islanders, they understood the sanctity of life, they understood divine eternal justice, and they also understood the power of God to save. Look at verse 5 with me. He, Paul, Luke is writing, he, Paul, however, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. So the apostle, imagine the response that you would have had if a, if a viper latched onto your hand. Paul's a cool cat. He shakes that thing right off. No worries. Into the fire. Verse 6. They're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. In other words, this, this viper was so poisonous, they were expecting an immediate response. Literally within minutes, Paul was going to swell up. He was going to have internal bleeding. And he was going to pass out, become rigid, and or just die. Um, but none of that happens. No swelling, no bleeding, no loss of consciousness. Paul suffers no harm. What happened? Well, you know what happened. It was a miracle, right? God's not going to bring Paul through a shipwreck onto the island only to have him die by snake bite when God had decreed that he was going to get to Rome. So Paul was not going to die, and Paul was not going to die because God was going to ensure that. So a miracle takes place, and the Maltese get it. These are, these, their worldview was very advanced. Look at verse 6. But when they had waited a long time, so what are they? They're waiting for him to die. Like, come on, Paul. Come on. He's going to go down. While they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds, and they said that he was a god. Okay, so our beloved Maltese, they overshoot again, Right? They draw, again, the wrong conclusions. And so now they said, you know what? He's not a murderer. We thought he was. We thought he was going to experience divine, eternal justice. He's a god. He's, he's one of our pagan gods now in the flesh. He's come to us. Um, and so, again, even though their conclusion is wrong, their thinking process is spot on. They're thinking correctly. They did not describe or believe that Paul was able to survive because of his natural immunity or some physical power, or maybe they didn't say, you know what, it must be Paul's genetic disposition. He must have a genetic disposition to be able to overcome this snake bite, which no one else in human history has been able to overcome. They don't argue any physical answer to this. Immediately they conclude, and they will write, that a supernatural force, a supernatural power is involved that his overcoming this guaranteed death sentence was beyond physical and natural explanation. They wrongly conclude that he was a god, but they rightly conclude that divine power is in play. Something supernatural is happening. They got it, and they were right. Now, we know the bigger picture. We know that Paul is being protected by the one true living God for the sake of the gospel, not only to get Paul to Rome so he can proclaim the gospel in the center of the Western world then, but I believe to open the door for Paul to reveal the gospel to the Maltese, that they might see God do a miracle in their sight, and then Paul proclaim the gospel, and they repent and they believe. To capitalize, I believe, on their understanding of the sanctity of life, and their understanding of divine justice, and their understanding of the power of God to save. They're close to the gospel, aren't they? They're so close. One commentator put it like this. He said, it would be impossible to conclude that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, would have withheld the good news of Jesus Christ from the Maltese people. I agree. For three months, Paul's there. Miracles are taking place in his midst. Of course he's preaching, and of course he's teaching a crucified Christ. Not only that, I mean, these are hospitable people. They're loving unconditionally. And they're very, very close to understanding key eternal truths. They just need some shaping. They need the word of God to come in and give some shape to their understanding of Christianity. So what would Paul have done? You say, well, it's not in the text. I don't know, Pastor. He just, it kind of, Luke kind of goes on. Well, you know what he would have done. He absolutely would have first affirmed their understanding of the sanctity of life, would he not? What he have not talked about all human beings being created in the image of God who is what? Who is life. Would Paul not have expounded upon that saying that regardless of age or condition because human beings are created in the image of God their life is to be protected and nurtured and cared for. He would have explained that even though they wrongly concluded that he was being punished by the gods lower G gods as a murderer he would have told them what? He just said, I am a murderer. You don't know. 
he'd have talked about his pre-conversion experiences having Christians put to death for their faith. He certainly would have drawn upon the teaching from Jesus in Matthew 5 and said, you don't know, my heart is steeped in murder. He'd have very likely quoted to them Matthew 5, verses 21 and following. This is what Jesus said to the disciples and the crowd that had gathered in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this is Christ speaking, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Brothers and sisters, that's all of us. Christ made it very clear. Every single person ever born is a murderer at heart. Now this would have compelled, I have no doubt, the Maltese to consider their own hearts in light of their understanding of divine justice. And by God's grace, they would have been drawn into Christ and come to a right conclusion that they needed a Savior, that they too, even though they accused Paul and they were right, that they too were murderers and deserving of death. And not just a physical death, but eternal death. Paul would have continued, I have no doubt, affirming their understanding of divine justice, explaining how it is the product of a just, eternal God. Now listen very closely, my beloved. I, I want you to just for the next couple minutes just focus. Can you do that for me? I need you to focus because this is hard. They would have believed divine justice. Paul would explain to them that's a product of who God is. God is just. God is good. And therefore he must judge and punish every sin, big or small, with an eternal punishment. God must judge our temporal sins, sins committed here in the flesh. He must judge them eternally. Not because of the size or the number of sins committed, but because of who the sins are committed against. This is so misunderstood. People will often say, I don't understand how God can punish a sinner for committing a sin here on earth, a temporal sin in time. How can he punish that sinner eternally? Forever and ever, the Bible says. How can God do that? Let me illustrate for you. If I were to walk up to you, God forbid, but if I were to walk up to you and just slap you in the face, um, you, you might have some responses. You might run. You might slap me back. You might call the police. I don't know what would happen. Um, but likely, that altercation would end pretty quickly and pretty easily. If I were to walk up to the President of the United States and I were to slap him on the face, same exact crime, it is likely I would be subdued, arrested, and put in jail for some time. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Same crime, different punishment. But it does make sense to you. You know that. Slapping the President of the United States is a greater offense because he is the President of the United States. He has a position and an authority and ascribe to him a glory that is different than ours. Now likewise, if we move up the chain of command to the infinite, perfectly just God of the universe, you now see why that sin must be punished eternally. Every single sin that you commit is you walking into the throne room of God, going up to the throne and slapping God on the face. How many times? Ten times. A thousand times. Tens of thousands of times throughout your life slapping God in the face again and again and again. And every single one of those sins is an infinite eternal sin because it's against an infinite eternal God which means it goes on forever and ever unless it is punished. It isn't difficult to see that the consequences even for the smallest sins against God are amplified infinitely forever. And therefore, eternal punishment in hell, even for the smallest sins, fits the crime against a perfectly, infinitely, holy, eternal God. Does that make sense? Okay. Paul would have explained that to them, that he would have taken their understanding of divine justice and he would have brought it into the throne room of God and explained to them why their sins against God require punishment without a Savior. Lastly, I believe that Paul would have corrected their misunderstanding that he was a God in the flesh. He might have corrected them immediately. In fact, he probably said, don't say that. Oh, don't say that. Don't call me a God. He would have pointed them to Jesus Christ, the real God-man who took on flesh. The real God-man who took on flesh so he could, out of his love for sinful men and women like you and me, take on, receive in his body the poisonous venom of God's wrath. 
that he might be bitten by that snake and receive the just punishment that we deserve as murderers. Like Paul and the Maltese, we murderers deserve too. He would have explained how God, out of his infinite love for sinful man, put his divine justice, which they understood, his eternal wrath upon the real God, man, Jesus Christ. Having Jesus receive the eternal consequences for our sins for two reasons. Number one, so that justice could be served. Right upon the cross when Christ received the punishment for sinful men, that means that God can stay holy and pure and righteous because Christ suffered the due penalty. All sin rightly punished. But the second thing is that sinners deserving of justice could be saved. Revealing God's great mercy and great grace shown to sinful men. On the cross, both those come in focus for us. God remains just and is able to be merciful because he punished an innocent man, Jesus Christ. Paul, no doubt, took what they already knew and he added the necessary truths of God's word to their worldview. He filled in the blanks so the gospel could be made clear and salvation by grace through faith in Christ could be freely given to the Maltese people. So before I go on to point number two, I want to ask you, do you have Maltese clarity in your worldview? Do you have clarity when it comes to the sanctity of human life? Do you have clarity when it comes to the divine justice of a holy God? And do you have clarity when it comes to the power of God to save? That he wants to save? That he longs to save the sinner? Is your worldview a biblical worldview? Better put, do you see the bigger story? Right, as you move throughout your day, you go to work, you go to school, week after week, month after month, do you know there's a much bigger narrative taking place? Underneath it all, there's a narrative of redemption by God that's happening on a day-to-day basis in your life. The Maltese got that. They didn't deny that the snake was real. They didn't deny that Paul had been bitten. They got that physical component, but they also saw that there was something else taking place, and they were right. Do you? When the snake bites you, when you lose your job, when the marriage is going south, do you see that there's a larger story at play and you're in that story, but what you're experiencing is not the totality of that story? Do you see that? Do you have supernatural eyes? Do you understand that the spiritual world is real and it is taking place in the context of our natural world? And if you do, then ask yourself this. Are you living your life in such a way, Christian, that the lost in your life know of this spiritual reality? Are you living in such a way that people look at you and say, you know what, they, their story's different than mine. I'm running around chasing after food and I'm chasing after success and, and a new house and, and they're not. They're living differently. They, they, they're seeing something differently. And do you bring that healing power to them? Do you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the confused and lost in our mission field? So, number one, We are to think biblically. And this leads to our second point. If we're thinking biblically, then number two, we will heal biblically. If we're thinking as Christians, if we're thinking as Christ, which is perfect thinking, by the way, then you will want to bring the healing power of the gospel to everyone around you. Point number two, I pray you're still with me, healing biblically. Look at verse seven. Now in the neighborhood of that place, the place where they had landed on the beach, were lands belonging to the chief of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So the second time now, Paul talks about, Luke talks about how hospitable the Maltese were. He's going to mention it again at the very end in verse 10. Uh, These people were amazing in their love for the foreigner. Um, And in the area around the shipwreck, Publius, who... They say the chief, it kind of makes it sound like Native American. I think we would fall in that category. He was the governor. He was actually the governor appointed by the the Sicilian authorities under uh, Rome. And so he is an official like Pontius Pilate or Festus or Felix that we looked at earlier. Um, And he is very gracious also. He brings, we don't don't think he brought all 276 into his house. Probably not. But he, he brought, he would have brought the ship owner. He would have brought the captain. Certainly Julius the centurion likely Paul, and certainly Luke, because Luke says he was asked to come into, and there for three days they are entertained at 
Publius's table. Look at verse eight. Now it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. So now they, Luke mentions that because he would have been there, right? Uh, Publius would not have denied his father a place at the table in and being hospitable to these castaways. So he's not there, and they find out that he has dysentery. Dysentery with a fever for any prolonged period of time in that time led to death, right? So he is, he's going to die if not treated. So aware of this, Paul offers Publius to go and heal his father. I don't know what Publius's reaction was like, but at that point in time, um, in the history of modern medicine, which it wasn't so modern then, anybody would do anything to try to save someone's life. So the latter part of verse 8, and Paul visited him, Publius his father, and he prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. Now immediately you are drawn back to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. You're drawn back to the, ap- the apostolic movement in the early church, where through prayer and the laying on of hands, there was a supernatural healing taking place. And that's exactly what Paul did. It's very reminiscent of Jesus. Remember when Jesus and Peter went to uh, Peter's house and his mother-in-law was there and, and she was dying and Peter healed her by doing the exact same thing. So a supernatural healing takes place and it, it took place in the context of the Gospels and it took place in the book of Acts for the exact same reason. It was to point to the supernatural healing offered by God through his son Jesus Christ. All the supernatural healings that we looked at, accompanied in the Gospels and accompanied in Acts, were to point to the cross. And they almost all had the same response by the people. Look at verse 9. This was predictable. And so I, I don't imagine Paul was surprised. And when this had taken place, when the healing of Publius' father had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and they were cured. So word gets out. <clears throat> word gets out there's a healer on the island. Not a fake healer, not a charlatan, not someone who would, a, you know, selling snake oil, but a real healer who had the power to heal real disease. And so they come to Paul, and just like in the ministry of Jesus, and just like in the ministry of the other apostles, we're told that Paul, this is now through the Holy Spirit, did what? He cured them. Every ailment, every sickness, every infirmity that they were plagued by, they come to Paul, Paul prayed for them, Paul touched them, Paul healed them. Lots and lots of miracles. Now, prior to the advent of modern medicine in the 1800s, you know modern medicine is really modern in the context of world history. Mankind for centuries suffered and died from all kinds of today what would be considered treatable diseases. Influenza, smallpox, leprosy, malaria, tuberculosis, not to mention the common infection left untreated because there were no antibiotics would often lead to death. And so charlatans would come in, fake doctors, and even the real doctors there, like Dr. Luke, didn't know that much on how to treat people. And so the suffering was real and legitimate for much of human history. And so to have access to a real doctor, someone who could fix the problem, cure the disease and the illness, it was nothing less to them, and they understood this miraculous. They understood it to be a miracle. They went expecting a miracle. So Luke describes for us miracles at sea, a miracle at the fire, miracle in, in Publius' house, healing the Father, and now multiple miracles for all the people of Malta. God, without reservation, was putting himself on display that the Maltese might be saved. I mean, there was, there was supernatural revelation and miracles taking place everywhere. And just as all these healings were to point them to their need to be spiritually healed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we too, my beloved, are called, just like Paul, to bring the spiritual healing power of the gospel to all those that we know, our friends, our family, our coworkers, our fellow students, were to bring the gospel to them that they might be healed too, not just physically but spiritually. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God healed many through Paul. All, listen, for the sake of the gospel. All for the sake of the gospel. As good as these cures were, if the miracles did not lead the person who was cured to salvation in Jesus Christ, then the miracle was temporary at best. And I would say worse yet, when that person stands before the holy throne of God and is judged, God will say, 
I healed you through Paul, and yet you still rejected my son. For those of you listening and thinking to yourself, oh, my goodness, imagine if I had that power. Imagine if I had the power to to heal cancer or to go to the cripple and enable them to walk. You say, if I had that power, Pastor, I would be all over the place all the time. I'd be in hospitals. I'd be to my parents' house, to my family's house. I'd be helping everybody I could heal them. You need to know something. The Apostle Paul would have forsaken his entire healing ministry to see a single sinner come to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. Paul's worldview, Paul thought biblically. He understood that if he healed the broken body but the soul was not healed, then it did the man or the woman no good. No eternal good. What good does it do to, pro- what, what does a, a man profit if he gains the whole world including his health but loses his soul in the end? It gains him no good. And this is where the church, the true church of God, is to play an active role in God's redemptive history. Modern medicine may have been introduced and may have introduced thousands of cures over the past 200 years. And we're very thankful. We're so thankful for the research that's led to that. But the remedy for the soul, the cure for the sinful heart, has and always remains the exact same. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. My beloved, I have often heard brothers and sisters in Christ talk about what they would do if they came into lots of money. I wonder what we would do if we came into lots of money. I heard a sister say this to me. She would would feed the poor. She'd house the homeless. She'd provide medical care for the sick. She'd pour money into research and development and find diseases for the most difficult diseases to cure. All noble causes and all good, but what my well-intentioned sister forgot is the cure that she already possesses that does not require a billion dollars in her bank account to give away freely. The gospel of Jesus Christ is freely given by God to sinful man, and we sinners saved by grace with the same gospel, are called and equipped by God, like Paul, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the spiritually sick in our mission field. You have the cure. Not a cure, but the cure. You have it if you know Christ. So the question, I think, for us, if we think biblically, if we have a biblical worldview like Paul, and we're not sharing the gospel, we're not bringing to the, the cure to those in our mission field who don't know Christ, the question is why? Why are we so quiet as a people? Now, over the, the years, we've talked, and I believe these things are true from the pulpit, that you know, sharing the gospel in the Western world is hard today. Sharing the gospel in the Bay Area is really hard today. You're going to get in trouble, maybe real trouble, and certainly trouble with your friends or your coworkers, your boss, your family. And there are lots of reasons why we don't. We're, I think we're afraid. Fear of man is probably number one right? People are going to think you're silly talking about this Jesus fellow. Some of us, I think, just lack faith in the power of the gospel to do the work that God promises he will do. Some of us just lack confidence. We don't think we know enough. That's a lie. If you know Christ, you know the gospel. That's all you need. That's sufficient to share it with others. But from this passage, I I want to show you something as I I thought about what what would the struggle be here in the context of this passage since we want to do good exegesis. Um, I'll give you two reasons, and they're, they're actually linked. The first would be unlike the Maltese. Unlike the Maltese who believed the natural and the spiritual worlds were intimately connected, living in the modern age, I believe we are more naturalistic in our thinking than we want to admit. We're more naturalistic. Well, what, what is that word, naturalistic? Naturalism is the worldview that assumes the physical world and its laws can explain the universe through scientific discovery in total. In other words, we don't don't need God, we don't need the supernatural, we can understand the universe, we can understand the world, we can understand the human condition by the physical world and by the laws that we know and discover through science. Now the problem is once the rules of the universe can be explained scientifically, we Westerners have a tendency, even Christians, be careful, to no longer need God as an explanation for the natural phenomena or even the human condition. We think, well, we know, we've studied it, we've done the empirical method, We know the answer. Therefore, we don't need to talk about God in explaining this. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus said this, God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now Jesus was rightly identifying God as the source of all rain. You think, well, that's funny. I took a meteorology class in my undergraduate studies, and I, I thought it had to do with weather patterns and cold fronts and temperature gradients and the amount of condensation nuclei in a particular piece of air. All those are true, but God's behind it all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warns the church that some, listen, you've heard this multiple times on Sunday mornings, some are sick and some are dying because they continue in willful, unrepentant sin. Paul said this, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul saying, you're sick physically and you're dying physically because you're continuing in sin. It's not a bacterial infection. It's not that you have heart disease. It's your sin against the living God. In other words, when rain or a shipwreck or a snake bite or sickness or death for modern man is explained only by natural means and we say we don't need God, we're no longer thinking like Christians. We don't need God, we cut him out of the equation, we no longer then see the state of the world as being primarily a spiritual problem and we no longer see our fellow man as primarily having a spiritual problem. Well that leads to the fallout from that, the second reason why we don't freely give the healing power of the gospel as we should, if we see the world primarily through physical eyes, then we will offer primarily physical solutions to spiritual problems. And we wonder why it never works. If you see, my beloved, if you, like, unlike the Maltese, if you look out upon life and you're drawing all your conclusions through natural, physical observation, and you've erased God and the spiritual world as part of your thinking process, then when you offer someone a solution, it'll be a physical solution. It won't be God. It won't be the gospel. An American missionary living in a remote part of Indonesia, he gave this example. <clears throat> Listen, when he first arrived, he was actually working on a, on a school. Students in a dormitory on campus would come to him in the middle of the night, and they would say, quick, quick, come to the dormitory. So-and-so is dying. So in the middle of the night, at breakneck speed, he'd make his way across the campus, he'd get to the dormitory in the dead of the night only to find that the student had a cold, had a cold. So he'd give the student some aspirin, some water, and tell them to rest. This happened time and time again. Now after a while, the students considered him, listen, a man of little faith. Because all he would do when they would call is come and give the students some medicine and some water and tell them to get some rest. After he would leave, the students would spend the entire night praying in shifts for their classmate to be healed by their God. Who was right? Who was right? The missionary later wrote this, quote, he said, in my worldview, we had quit praying for colds and ear infections a generation ago. We understood them so God was no longer involved. He said, this is a serious loss. We no longer needed a loving father watching over us in the middle of the night. That was his correct observation of his failure to see things biblically. If we view this world and the struggles of man primarily through the narrow lens of naturalism, physical laws, scientific discoveries, then our solutions to man's problems will primarily be physical too and not spiritual. We will not see shipwrecks or snake bites or supernatural healings in our lives through the lens of the gospel, even though God is still active and God is still involved in every detail of your life. You'll always look for a naturalistic physical explanation, and therefore you'll always look for a naturalistic solution. That is a catastrophic loss, as the missionary said. So when someone is sick, and they need to go to the doctor, you will take them to the doctor, as you should, but you won't inquire about potential sin in their life. That's what Paul talked about. Some are sick and some are dying because of willful unrepentance. You won't talk to them about sin. You won't pray for them. You won't say, you know, is there anything you need to confess before I take you to the doctor and get you on medication? You won't do that if you're thinking 
without a biblical worldview. We will recommend medication and counseling for the anxious and the depressed without turning to the word of God and prayer for answers and healing through the spirit and the word. Addiction, sexual immorality, anger issues, we will ascribe to genetics and will say it is therefore excusable because that's how you were made. And even in your own struggles, my beloved, if we're truthful, we will seek if we do not have a biblical worldview, we will seek physical answers. We'll ask people for prayer, pray for me, but that may be the extent of our spirituality when it comes to sickness or depression or anxiety. In other words, the problem of sin and the solution of the gospel will not be first and foremost on your mind even though you profess to be a Christian. It won't be first. So when we encounter the sick and the suffering and the lost in our mission field, we will not offer them the spiritual healing that they need because we do not, what? We don't do good triage. We don't do good triage as Christians. We look upon all those in our mission field, those whose marriages are falling apart. We think, I need to get them marriage counseling. Those who can barely leave their house because they're full of anxiety. We say, we need to get them on medication. Those who have been suffering from some autoimmune disease for years, we say, we need to get them to a doctor. And yet our triage is off. Those in our mission field, saved and unsaved, first and foremost, they need God. Those who do not know Christ in your mission field, oh, help them. My goodness, help them physically. But do not do it at the expense of helping them spiritually. Anyone in your mission field who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, their biggest problem is not their autoimmune disease or their anxiety or their failing marriage. Their biggest problem is they are not reconciled to the living God. That is their biggest problem. So make sure you bring that solution. Show them how they can be reconciled to God in Christ. Show them how they can be forgiven of their sins, declared righteous through faith in Christ. Show them how they can be brought out of the darkness and into God's family as a son or daughter, no longer in rebellion, no longer slapping God the Father in the face day after day, week after week. Show them that they can actually have God. If we don't see man's primary need as being reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ, then we will not share with them the gospel, even if we believe it to be true ourselves. We won't. And then we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe it to be true? If we don't offer the solution to man who is hurting, to man who is perishing in his sins. If we don't offer that, do we really believe it to be true? Paul did. Paul healed their physical bodies and he proclaimed the gospel because he was presenting to them a picture of Christ coming again in glory. Right? Their physical healings temporally was a picture of Christ redeeming them ultimately and spiritually getting the new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. The consummation of when Christ comes again in glory. And they were grateful. Look at verse 10. Luke said, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So third chance for Luke to say, these people, so hospitable, loved us in Christ. Certainly changed by the miracles, changed by the gospel, and they expressed their love. My beloved, let's, let's be more like the Maltese. Hmm? Let's be more like the Maltese. Let's see the sanctity of every single human life and in seeing the sanctity of every human life, let's not just fight for the unborn, let's do that, but let's let our vision also proclaim the gospel faithfully to the image bearers and our mission field so that in the end they do not perish. If you say you believe in the sanctity of human life, then you should be sharing the gospel with the lost. Let's acknowledge the justice of God, that justice will not be thwarted, Let's acknowledge that we are murderers at heart. Every human being is. Let's tell them about the great day of judgment to come. That that day is unavoidable. That justice will be procured. And that every sin, big or small, will be brought out into the open. And if you do not have Christ as your covering, then the author of Hebrews is right. Only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary remains. And then let's acknowledge Jesus Christ is the only real God-man. The only one who has the power and desire to grant sinners like us forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And let's tell people about him. The real God-man.
My beloved, let's ask God right now to cause us to think biblically and in our thinking offer biblical healing of the gospel to all the Maltese in our lives. Amen? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we recognize that our thinking more oftentimes than not is not spiritual but physical. We are more products of our culture than we would like to admit. I ask, Father, you'd be gracious with us this morning that you would cause us to not reject the physical truths that we've discovered by your grace through science, but to understand, Lord, that the spiritual world, your plan of redemption, is interwoven. I pray, Lord, that first and foremost we would see that man's greatest problem is his sin and separation from you. And as a result of knowing that, Father, we would faithfully proclaim the gospel to all who have ears to hear. We'd help those in our lives who do not know you see that human life truly is sacred. We would help them to see, Lord, that you are a just and holy God and you must, because of your character and nature, eternally judge every sin and we will show them Christ. Help us to that end, I pray. I ask, Father, that we'd freely give the cure that was freely given to us, that we would tell those who do not know Christ about Christ and that you would be gracious to save through him. Father, we are surrounded by those who do not know you. All of us have family and friends, some very, very dear to us, who still struggle with the problem of man. They have yet to be redeemed. We are certainly surrounded by the lost here in Cambrian Park, in San Jose, in the Bay Area. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Make us workers of the harvest, I pray, that we might bring the solution and the cure of Christ to those who are perishing. We praise you so much for the hope that we have in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would make us productive in the time that we have. In Christ's name, amen.